Welcome to the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. And here we are. I'm pleased to welcome a new guest to the Assembly of Silence this episode. I was uh, wanting to get a little bit more familiarized with some of the ancient Greek classics. So I did a search, and I found a podcast called Cryptosophy. And um, I really love this podcast. It's uh, two gentlemen, young guys, by the name of Doyle and Max. And they just have really wonderful conversations about a variety of topics, including the classics, but that's not the only thing they talk about. And it really reminded me, in some ways, of what happens here on the Assembly of Silence, in terms of kind of an informal, uh, warm relationship type of conversation that's very open and honest, and I found it really refreshing, and I thought, you know what, why not reach out to these guys and see if uh, they might be interested in interfacing with the Assembly of Silence, because we have a slightly different focus here than what they're doing. But I thought that it would make for an interesting crossover. So I reached out and I heard from Doyle, and he agreed to come on the podcast. And uh, what resulted was a long conversation that I think of as being really just a preliminary exploration of the many issues that uh, we share as an interest. So I'm not going to speak much more about it because it's a pretty long episode, but I just want to say that I really uh, enjoyed this conversation, and I look forward to more with Doyle and perhaps Max at some point in the future. And uh, and we're going to jump right into it. I'll just say the uh, standard type of thing that I say on uh, every episode, which is if you want to support this effort. There are links in the show note description. You can go to patreon.com slash taijireality. And I also have a substack now, taijireality.substack.com. And uh, there's plenty of other uh, ways of going about supporting you know the drill. It involves things like hitting like buttons, doing the reviews, the stars, all that kind of stuff. If you want to be participatory in this whole endeavor. I hope you find this episode interesting, and uh, here you go. A conversation with Doyle Baxter of the Cryptosophy Podcast. I I don't know if you ever have heard this statement, and I say it um, partially in jest, but definitely there's some seriousness to it, is that there are certain ideas that you... you have, you have to have a PhD to be stupid enough to believe them. <laughs> That's great. And, and I think that clearly, especially in the, um, in the activist disciplines at the Academy, that is just true. And <laughs> there's kind of like an old guard of, of, and they're not necessarily conservative in a political sense, but there's an old guard of more conservatively minded academics that are, you know, in some sense, like, or have been forced to the fringes, even of, 
even of the universities where they've been teaching for decades. And it's, it's, there's just kind of been an inversion of, of what, what the university is all about, what dialogue is all about. And I, I, I agree with you completely that it does not matter what your credential is. It does not matter. Um, even like your background or history, like your participation in a conversation is like part of, part of your calling as a human being to be able to enter into these things and use speech uh, to discern the truth in, in, in a partnership with your interlocutors, with the people you're talking with. Well, I think that, you know, probably it's a relatively small number of us who are called to do this, but for some reason or another, those of us who are, we find it to be essential. Quite frankly, I wonder sometimes the extent to which that's true, but, you know, I don't want to get down that rabbit hole too much. I think what you bring up with respect to what's presently happening within the, uh, the institutions of higher learning is... I think in many respects, following a historical pattern. And on some basic level, you could say, well, every civilization has kind of a lifespan to it. And the ideas which are uh, the founding core of that civilization's raison d'etre, if you like, eventually they kind of lose their power and succumb to a wide range of other competing concepts. You know, regardless of, uh, you know, one of the problems here, of course, is that the power of ideas doesn't necessarily always relate to whether or not they're true. You know, some of the most powerful ideas are, are definitely not true. And that's a sad fact, but I think it's unavoidable. I think it's also incredibly ironic that you have people like Noam Chomsky, who a long time ago made the observation that, you know, in him, he, in, in his instance, he's being critical of essentially, uh, I don't know if conservative is really the right word. I would say probably more the, um, the establishment. And he was saying essentially that it takes an Ivy League education in order to, to believe these things, that in essence, from his very left-wing uh, point of view, at that time, he was pointing towards the, the establishment, which was largely conservative, uh, as having a set of ideas which made no sense. So the accusation has been thrown around a lot. And in some way, I think philosophically speaking, it might be said that it's pretty difficult to really pin down truth when it comes to uh, politics and ethics and that sort of thing. It is an uncomfortable marriage between these things. So there is a degree to which we're on unsteady ground when it comes to really trying to, let's say, for example, understand the truth of what it means to be human. Yes, certainly. And I think that there's a, there's just an acknowledgement, a silent acknowledgement that any set of ideas will sort of do for the establishment. And that will come and go like fashions come and go. Hmm. And that, that there's, there's really just a need that this core group of, of individuals who find themselves in power, that they're, that them and their successors continue to remain there. And as a result, there are certain there are certain forms of speech in in especially in American society today that that truth is just not at all the end or the aim 
of that speech, it, even though it ought to be. I think the the presidential debates are just a really tangible example of sp- speech for not speech's sake or if not for truth's sake. Um, and this is true, I think, both of the vice presidential debate and the presidentials, uh, one of which was way worse than the other, of course. I think I have an idealistic hope in my head that, you know, the purpose of this forum for two politicians to get up there and say their piece isn't actually to just speak to their base and get them excited, but rather to actually engage with their opponent, have a dialogue and have there be some sort of resolution from the conversation of something that we have in common and something that we're both going to work towards, whether regardless of who gets elected president. And then there are things that we will do differently from one another if the if we're elected president. And that that I, idealism for what the the speech is supposed to be oriented towards has just, I think, been totally shattered. Well, I think um, we are touching on something that's incredibly important and very difficult to excavate. I do believe, uh, like you, that truth is of the utmost importance. I also think that it's not easily discerned except for some very basic, very kind of metaphysical types of truths. However, in the case of, you know, real politic, I guess you might say, it seems that the truth is really hard to come by and that it's it's been a long time that the um, utterances of our politicians have been mostly false, really. And on some level, you could understand that when it comes to power, uh, power can't really afford to show its hand. And so on some basic level, there's always going to be a fair degree of obfuscation and distraction and misguidance coming from the mouths of those who are, you know, the mouthpieces of power. That seems to be in itself a kind of truth that we're uh, burdened with when it comes to the political domain. And, and I think that there's a way in which this interfaces with some of the spiritual concerns, because I do believe that on some fundamental le- level, a society which is perpetually lying to itself is one that's not long for this world. So I don't know what that says in general about political institutions, although it has to be acknowledged that they do tend to come and go. And, uh, and it's an incredible struggle. So on some basic level, I, I do feel that there is a, a kind of uh, incompatibility between the political realm and the spiritual realm. Uh, you could probably take that a, a step deeper and, and speculate on whether or not there's compatibility between the material realm in general and the spiritual realm, which is something that occasionally comes up here. I just had a baby son um, just a little over six months ago. And so Congratulations. obviously- um, thank you. Thank you. His name is Phoenix and, uh, he's incredible. The joy of my life, certainly. As you can imagine, the question of vaccinations for an infant have come up both among my friends, family, so on and so forth. And it was really interesting because I had never really thought deeply about, uh, the anti-vaxxer movement or about any of the philosophical or, or, you know, non-philosophical, just other sorts of reasons why one might become one. 
Um, so I'll caveat all, all this with saying I am not an anti-vaxxer. In fact, I am a vehement anti-anti-vaxxer, so to speak. I uh, give my in-laws grief because they don't get their flu shot every year. And uh, so uh, that's, that's you know, my perspective on it. But one of the things that is interesting is, I, and I'm not super up to this. I didn't, uh, I haven't watched this documentary series, but apparently recently on Netflix, there is a documentary series that's about, you know, individuals that hold fringe ideas and one of them is a, a lady who's an anti-vaxxer. And my parents uh, were, and I were discussing uh, this lady and ostensibly we were discussing how crazy she is, right? <laughs> and I took a moment and I paused in the conversation and I thought, I totally agree that she's crazy. And the fact that the anti-vaxxer movement is gaining steam to the point where it could actually pose a threat to public health is problematic. But I want to bracket that for just a moment and consider that the anti-vaxxers are something of the canary in the coal mine, or they could be. And that's the way that I'm sort of choosing to view them. And in particular, I, I mean simply that it goes without saying today that generalized statements about public health from you know, public health authorities, whether it's your personal doctor or up to like some institution like the CDC or something, um, that in general, the world pretty much marches to the beat of this drum. And um, the medical establishment is very real. And there are things that are taught in med school that are really more matters of policy, not of science, when it comes to how you treat patients, or even deeper, their philosophies of medicine that are taught as fact rather than as opinion, which they in fact are, that could be mm -hmm. that could be debated. And so I kind of wanted to just start the conversation by asking you um, about just your perspective on the the need for objectors in society like the crazy ones how how necessary are they to prevent us really from from starting to, to if if for no other reason than to make you think huh maybe that authority figure doesn't have my best interest at heart when he proclaims this piece of information or this dictate yeah well uh that opens up a huge can of worms there's a number of different levels uh, upon which we can we can rest when it comes to analyzing the situation. And I guess while it's completely understandable that large civilizations with dense populations would be particularly concerned about the spread of disease, it also has to be acknowledged that just from a biological point of view, the extent to which we protect ourselves from pathogens Basically, what it's doing is it's it's making our immune systems ever more vulnerable. And so, you know, on a, on a very fundamental level, we are weakening our species by getting really good at uh, warding off illnesses. And and that's, a, you know, if you kind of look at that in the very long term view, it doesn't bode well. So, 
you could make the argument that a lot of what we're seeing in terms of chronic illnesses and uh, susceptibilities and that sort of thing are the results of the successes that we've had uh, in the medical field. So, you know, nature has Certainly, a terrible... Of which there are so many to recount. Yeah, yeah. All of that, I think, is pretty obvious, but it's not really part of the debate when it comes to the vaccine thing. And I think it should be. But on the other hand, the, the real issue comes down to, well, who gets to decide whether or not you have the right to walk around in society if you haven't been vaccinated? That's an incredibly difficult question to to answer. So I guess, you know, I'm, I'm kind of going down into one specific area. You asked a more general question about the wingnuts in society and the extent to which they're offering something of importance. And I would say, well, clearly, historically, some of the fringe people have been incredibly, how shall we say it, useful, I guess, really, when it comes to innovation in particular. And also, also, I think just in general as a challenge, because if you have unchallenged authority, that tends to go very badly. And so just having people who are continually kind of questioning whatever the predominant narrative is, it's a drag. It can, you know, cause there to be a lot of unnecessary friction, but I don't see how else you do error correcting in society on a large scale. There always has to be some room for for this kind of a dialogue. And unfortunately, there are opportunists who seize on this and who will essentially fabricate a position just because it's provocative and they can kind of leverage a degree of uh, attention and particularly in an attention economy like the one that we're increasingly being pushed into, uh, that becomes a lot of unnecessary and I'd say somewhat dangerous noise. And, you know, we're seeing a lot of pressure now being brought to bear to silence voices. And I think that's incredibly dangerous too. You know, at some level, I think of all of this as being artifacts of, uh, of a civilization at a relatively late stage where things are somewhat incoherent. And I guess you could make the case like the, the metaphor that I usually use is that we're living in, in, a, in a new Babylon. And so the, the confusion of tongues is in essence what happens when a civilization has become a bit too big for its britches and in the course of specializing has come to have so many different ways of speaking that uh, the different components of society are no longer able to understand each other. And no longer able to work together and in order to fulfill their cultural projects. Yeah. That is a fascinating interpretation of the Tower of Babel. I, I don't know that I had ever really considered that. That seems to me to be what the message is, yeah. Well, you know, I think in some respects, you know, I might be one of those people who's somewhat of a, a sideline type of personality who comments from the wings and says things that are a little bit off the beaten track. And I know that for some people, they really don't want to hear what I have to say. Uh, mostly the people who I grew up with, <laughs> which is, um, which is, has been very troubling for me, but nevertheless, that's, that's the way it's gone. And I have struggled a lot over the years with, you know, well, should I say what I'm actually thinking or should I just shut up? And I've kind of 
trod somewhat of a middle path with that. And I guess in some respects, you could say that the Assembly of Silence has been uh, an avenue for me to be able to sound off without offending people in my immediate circle, uh, most of whom are not really in my immediate circle anymore. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's it's a strange position to find yourself in. And I do have a lot of sympathy for people who take unpopular positions. Although, you know, I do recognize also that quite often when you take a position that's against any other position, in many respects, what you're doing is you're strengthening the position that you're speaking against. Because typically what people will do is they'll rise up to meet whatever challenge is being made. And so regardless of whether or not it makes sense, you know, and right now we're in a, in a, a civilization that has a, a lot of difficulty with sense making. So on some level, it's really not even on the table. It's not considered that important whether what you're saying makes sense. What's considered is the extent to which you can get a bunch of people to hit the like button. It's, it's kind of a consensus type of verification process as to whether or not someone has a valid point, right? which is an absolute tragedy from my point of view. But on the other hand, it's a very basic reaction. It's like the sort of very elemental emotional reaction. And I think in some respects, one of the things that's led us into Babylon is that everyone kind of became an emotional creature somewhere around the 70s, maybe the 60s, where, you know, self-expression, all this kind of stuff, like the was a reaction against this kind of rationalism that came out of the industrial period. And we were in this kind of post-industrial information wave that started to occur. And part of that was the so-called liberation of the individual. And I'm using the air quotes. And in that liberation was the capacity for each of us to have our own feelings and to say what we thought and felt. And all of that was kind of very exciting for people, but it led to a place where on some level, the, the ability to think was lost. The ability to think was lost, indeed. But the other thing that was lost was fu fundamentally a, just a misunderstanding of what ideas are. There's, there's a theory of ideas that I think is a really good one. And I think even this might go back to Nietzsche. He's probably one of many, many who have held this, but it's not people that have ideas, rather it's ideas that have people. Mm, that's good. And the internet has been the absolute proof that this is entirely true. And what's incredible about it, there's a great video called, this video will make you angry by CGP Grey that explains perfectly the internet's role with regards to the um, kind of the, the straw manning slash monstrification of views such that the best way, like if you think of ideas more as germs than anything else, then that the best way that they can spread is by being as, um, as rambunctious or as need to be talked about as possible. So the more outrageous an idea is, the more you go and tell your friends like, oh my gosh, there's this outrageous idea and they think X, right? And then what you've actually done is even though you didn't convince those people to hold that idea, you just found people for that idea to possess. And what are they going to go do? Like they're going to go introduce that idea to some other person as an outrage and they're going to say, 
I heard about those people and they heard X only the next time you tell it, you're going to make it even worse and worse and worse and worse and worse <laughs> and monstrify it even more so that it's more spreadable. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that the, the, it's really interesting that you point out the sixties or the seventies and the relationship between emotion and thinking. I think that that's actually dead, right. And I think it has much to do with the, the education, the education system system is the wrong word for this. I mean, the educational tradition that we had for centuries and millennia, almost a full, over a full thousand years held to, all of a sudden started to be put by the wayside. And I think that the first consequence of that is that people don't know how to think anymore. Yeah. Well, the media became the education because that was really the, the entrainment. That was the conditioning. Yeah, the the amount of conditioning, you know, originally a classical education was a form of conditioning, and that would be what you would be steeped in, and the rest of it would be normal social interaction. But now, you know, with the advent of electronic media, you had this kind of entrainment mechanism that entered the home that was uh, basically recreation. It was like recreational entrainment, and it had way more power than education. So... On some basic level, you could say like, you know, Madison Avenue, the kind of advertising business uh, in in cooperation with the entertainment industry became the new educators of society with terrible consequences. You know, and what you were talking about before is that kind of the the idea mechanism, the meme, the you could say the virulence of the meme has to do with the controversy quotient, the extent to which it can cause people to react and you know there's something very interesting that maybe you'll have more information on than i do because i have a relatively kind of uh sketchy philosophical history background but i am very interested in what they call the hegelian dialectic and i have not read much hegel but i've kind of deconstructed you could say the the hegelian dialectic in a way that i find very satisfying and incredibly interesting but i've also noted that quite often people on the right dismiss the hegelian dialectic as if it were some sort of like left-wing trick to screw with people and i really don't think that that's what was initially being said although i do think that that's how it's used but fundamentally i think it's an observation on the nature of discourse and essentially what he's saying is that when there's a proposition made, it automatically creates the negation to that proposition. So it has that kind of conflict dynamic built into it. And that it's through this negotiation of that point of conflict that the concrete result ends up occurring, which is always not either the abstract or the negation, or in the other formulation, they'll call it the, the thesis or the antithesis, right? So to me, that seems like, well, yeah, that's like the fundamental uh, interaction that's occurring in dialectics. And to just dismiss it as if it were some sort of a trick seems like a really a, like a lost opportunity to have insight into what's going on. Because, yeah, it's true. It's used that way. And, in, and you're pointing that out, that basically when you create a very powerful meme, it's it stimulates the the Hegelian dialectic in anyone who's paying attention. That's a really interesting perspective as well. I, I wonder if the reason why 
a more conservative or a right-wing set of thinkers wouldn't want to dismiss the the dialectic there as as a left-wing trick because you could simplify and say that the thesis has a binary truth value. It's either true or false. And the antithesis, <laughs> Maybe. antithesis, the, antithesis Maybe. <laughs> the antithesis needs to be the opposite of that. And there is no middle ground between truth and falsehood. So therefore, whatever, whatever, um, I guess it's the thesis, uh, sorry, thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. So the synthesis then would have to be false because it would be anded together with a false because either the thesis or the antithesis is okay, false. Okay, let, let's so I think this. I think <laughs> I don't know that I agree with this, but I think that that's probably why you would say that, right? Well, no, actually I think that when you make a uh, a proposition, so the abstract or the thesis, however you want to refer to it, has not necessarily a binary value because it may be indeterminate. So we may be unable to determine whether or not it's uh, true or false, or it may, you know, let's say there's some sort of a quantum bit involved that really has an indeterminate position uh, that's fundamental to the proposition. So, you know, sometimes we're unable to evaluate a proposition because we just don't have the information necessary or the tools necessary. And sometimes there's a proposition made that just simply, there is no logical approach to it. It kind of comes down to the domains of knowledge. So there, there are some things that we know we know, there's some things that we know we don't know, and then there's that whole realm of the unknown, which is huge. Like we have to acknowledge that there's probably most of the phenomena out there is unknown on some very basic level. And so we're not going to be able to make a determination about truth or falsehood. And this, I think, kind of gets into some of the things that you've uh, discussed with Max having to do with the natural and the supernatural. You know, so you have the, the study of philosophy would be that of what is natural, the things which are occurring that we can observe. And then uh, theology would be that which we cannot observe. And yet at the same time, we have reasons to believe our are real and are valid and are worth serious consideration. And so every abstract, every thesis is going to have, you know, it's going to be somewhere on that spectrum. If we're lucky, we'll be able to evaluate it on some basis. But, you know, it may be the case that depending upon what we think of as being the foundation, we're going to come up with a different evaluation. And that's where the dialectic always comes from, right? So you can make an argument that you know a given proposition is true or false sometimes there's no way to evaluate it sometimes there are ways to evaluate it which still don't really uh, give you a definitive conclusion yeah certainly and and like i said i don't know that i that i buy that critique because it's it's a little it's 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 juniorish it's kind of amateurish and it doesn't pay i think right credence to the complexity of some of the ideas that are presented. And so I'm I'm gonna claim a little bit of ignorance on just the Hegelian dialectic in particular, because I never studied Hegel in any depth. But I do think that at, at the very least, if we just talk about the, the dialogical process and we just think about it as, you know, even what I was, even what I referenced earlier about perhaps the true purpose of a presidential debate where you have two opponents and they come together and at the end of the conversation, there's going to be 
something that we can both agree on and we can as a kind of as a nation all work towards and there are going to be particular things that we disagree on and as individual partisans we can work towards those things and the the purpose of the dialogue being teasing out those things um what is partisan what is not and helping to recenter us on the things that are important which are the nonpartisan ones um and i think that that is just that's more of an observation about what what happens in a conversation like even right now like i made an extreme point about the dialectic you came in with a really good argument for why i should reconsider that and here i am talking about a middle way right and so we're <laughs> witnessing the synthesis of two opposed ideas happening right yeah um we're and, always witnessing this dialectic and we can basically remove Hegel's name from it because if I understand correctly, the more you read Hegel, the more difficult it is to understand what the hell it was he was talking about. So I don't really care that it's Hegel's <laughs> dialectic because to me, the idea stands on its own. So we can just refer to it as the dialectic and just get rid of that whole Hegelian nightmare and, and we don't have to worry about it anymore. Yeah, certainly, certainly. And, and so to bring this back to our discussion about, you know, the 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 question of education and the emotionalization of like all people especially starting in the the 60s and 70s i i would like to like level the claim that the reason why there's been such a dramatic change is that you know there's a critique of the great books in particular and just classical education in general that they're the observations and um you know essentially power structures of old dead white men right yeah. and if you actually look up like the genders and races and ages of all the of, of the authors of all these books they're almost all right that they're old dead and white well at least at and one time they were young the problem is is that <laughs> at least at one time they were young the problem is though is that if you were to stack you know so even if you take encyclopedia britannica's a compilation of the great books that they released in uh, in encyclopedia sort of format um, a couple of times. The diversity isn't in the races or the genders or the ages, but there is tremendous diversity in thought in a canon that includes, you know, in the same canon, somebody like a Homer and a Virgil and a Marx, right? or a Nietzsche and an Aristotle and a St. Thomas Aquinas. The diversity of the thoughts of these thinkers is astronomical and the disagreements that they hold on, on position of the cosmos in which we inhabit. Um, they're they're non-reconcilable differences. And yet these different ideas were the basis of Western education for, you know, essentially starting you know, you could say that the formalization of Western education starts as early as the 900s or 800s um, in the court of Charlemagne, and then it gets really beaten into a final form in the 1100s with the founding of um, the first universities. And so, but what that meant is that by the time you, from, from by the time you are actually entering the dialogue as a master or as a doctor, you have in your education and in your head had to wrestle with irreconcilable differences among the thinkers that you've studied. And so then it's no surprise to you when your colleagues hold different positions to you than you do on fundamental things like the essence of God or 
the nature of different sorts of moral situations, right? It's no surprise to you that people have different opinions because that's your entire education has been a tour of the world's great different opinions. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. It, it seems that, uh, the irony of the situation is that when people were being told that their individual feelings mattered more than the ideas of others, uh, they somehow or another ended up in a situation where it was really only their own feelings that mattered. And so you could only aggregate into groups that felt the same way as you did and align yourselves against those who felt differently. And I'm using the word felt or feel as opposed to think, because <laughs> that's basically what it comes down to, because you can't think if that's that's what your baseline is. You have to be able to deal with difference if you're a thinker. And, and that, I guess, is really the fundamental strength of the intellectual project, and I think also the hope for the future, because if we're not gonna be able to get beyond our differences, then we're simply not gonna succeed as a society. We will fail. And I'm, I am really concerned that we're already right on that precipice here. And, uh, and so it seems to me that now more than ever, the intellectual project is of great importance, although there are some serious problems with it too, because basically we're gonna have to use our intellect in order to deal with the emotionality of a great uh, majority of the population. And, and many of the people who are running the show, or at least they're using that emotionality uh, to be able to achieve certain objectives. And, you know, the intellect isn't really well adapted to dealing with that. I think on some level, there's a more, <sighs> you know, the, it, it gets down to real politics. It gets down to human psychology. It gets down once again towards, well, it doesn't really matter what the argument is. What matters is the outcome. And so then you kind of end up with a by whatever means necessary type of strategy. And, and then you just end up being just as bad as, <laughs> you know, it's kind of why every uh, revolution fails in, in terms of uh, uh, creating a more beautiful world. It seems that quite often what ends up happening in the process of trying to address the ills of society in order to have any political power, people start playing the power games necessary in order to aggregate that power. And the next thing you know, they're just as bad as the people they're trying to overthrow. But, you know, right. I just want to bring up one quick thing about this whole idea of like old white men, because I think that, you know, while it's true that the classical Western education focused primarily on, you know, let's say the Greeks and and uh, the Western tradition, there really was a through line that reached back archaeologically towards Egypt and which included a deep respect for a lot of the writings of ancient India and also of China. So I think it's a somewhat oversimplification to say that a real classical education was just old white guys. You know, they, I mean, okay, maybe guys, right? But I think some of, some of that effort went back uh, to cultures that were radically different from what we consider to be the West, although it has to be said that really the Greeks admired the Egyptians tremendously, right? And that, um, yeah. And that, you know, there was also a deep respect for, for what was discovered within the intellectual tradition of India by those very same classical uh, scholars. So absolutely. And that point is totally forgotten. So, I mean, so even in my, so I, I majored in classics, right? Which in the 21st century, that means you majored in Latin and Greek. 
Mm-hmm. But if I had majored in if I had majored in classics uh, even a hundred years ago in the nineteen the nineteen teens, I absolutely also would have studied Sanskrit. Yeah, it's um, it's fascinating. Like, why did that happen? You know, uh, in some ways, the the classics set themselves up for this accusation, and I don't really understand why. You, yeah, it's 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 interesting. I would guess that part of the problem with the so classics as a field sort of emerges. You know, like I mean, because you think about these, we've we had studied these books forever, but we hadn't really brought scientific rigor to the study of the languages that the books were written in. And so there actually was an an innovation there, a new field that emerges like this thing, like classical philology, like becomes, enters. Um, And you could say it happens, you know, around the same time as the rest of the enlightenment sciences are coming up. Uh, 1700s, end of the 1700s, it starts to really, really become a thing. And then experiences a flowering in the 1800s. And I think part of what happened is that there was so much study of languages that were so much more dead than Latin, Greek, and Sanskrit that there did become something of like a bad taste in the, in one's mouth for why am I at, why am I translating ancient Babylonian? Like this literally hasn't been written. There hasn't been a book written in this in literally thousands of years. Whereas in Latin and Greek, like books are written in Latin every year still. Interesting. So I, so I do think that there was a little bit of a course correct after there was, there was this kind of really interesting and exciting flowering of the study of dead languages. Like the classics needed to course correct themselves a little bit. And essentially what it did is it put, it put the language, the dead languages in a hierarchy. And it said the most important dead language is Latin. And the second most important dead language is Greek. And so all of our students are going to study those. And then if they want to go off and do their own things in postdoc or in grad school, they can do it there. But you're totally right. We set ourselves up for it. (laughs) I've heard, you know, you mentioned philology there. And I've heard from probably that kind of fringe quarter of, uh, of people on the sidelines, a theory that goes something like this, that in essence, the whole field of philology was dismissed and replaced by uh, linguistics because there was a, a, a mystical set of associations that happen when you start to really take a look at the way language is structured and the relationship between words that gave way more credence to a bunch of spiritual concepts than the scientific paradigm was willing to put up with. And so in essence, absolutely, in essence, philology was just shunted aside. Good luck being able to even study it now in a university. Right. And, and you have this thing that's essentially a technical exercise that's completely eliminated all of the spiritual substance, <laughs> which is, of course, what the ancient what the ancient languages were all about. Precisely. As a science, linguistics would and you actually see this in some of the philosophers like Wittgenstein in particular with his theory of language games. I would, I've not, I'm not super familiar with Noam Chomsky's work, but I know of him. I would assume that he sort of follows in a, in a Wittgensteinian sort of understanding of what language is about. And I think that if you actually study philology, not linguistics, you actually come to see that how wrong they are and that there is metaphysical import of these words. And only a few thinkers um, in recent times like actually managed to 
to put those positions out there in a way that was taken seriously. Heidegger might have been, you know, one of the most recent to, to do so in a mm. deep way. He, he speaks a lot about how just the study of the word being reveals so much about what it means for us to, to ask the question of being. And, you know, he spoke German, right? So like there's a couple of different wor root words for being that are built into their, to their word for it. And the same is true in English, right? Because being has one root that begins with a B. And then we also say that he is, which has got an S in it, right? And we were in the past, right? So there's a W-E-R root there too. Mm -hmm. And, and those, those are the same roots by happenstance in, in German too. And so Heidegger studies those and finds some really fascinating things about the, the, the relationship between totally irrelated or seemingly unrelated concepts, including and up to um, the linguistic association and perhaps identity between logos, the Greek word, and one of those root words for being, which would, mm. which kind of, you know, takes these, all of these separate like intellectual concepts that have been, been, put into their own little science, like epistemology, the study of knowledge. And like, we put that in a box over there and ontology, the study of, you know, being over there. And like, those guys don't talk to each other, but there's actually tremendous fruit towards the, the rebuilding of, of a spiritual folk. If you consider these things as a, a unified metaphysics. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I actually wrote an article that's about that very subject. And you know what, let's dive into this because this is, I think, probably the most elemental uh, question and something that I've been really interested in recently. It was pointed out to me on a number of occasions, and I, I kind of got it pointed out again recently by, I think it was Ken Wheeler, actually, who says that if you take a look at the root of the word exist, what it actually means is outside of being. X meaning, you know, outside of, and ist, which is the German, I believe. So, you know, Indo-European, we're basically English and, and German are both Indo-European languages, right? The, the fascinating thing is that we have a word that we think of as being equivalent to being. That means, from what I understand, not being. So, you know, the difference between existing and being is something that I've been focusing on as a concept, particularly in light of there's a there's a symbolic system. I don't know if you've run across this that uh, I talk about quite often and that I've developed a theory about, which is called Bagua. It's an ancient Chinese system. It involves uh, a language that's made up of essentially words that consist of three lines, which are either solid or broken. And there's a whole tradition behind it and what have you. I don't want to get into all the details, but uh, my belief is that you could view this as a way of describing the mode of being versus a mode of existing. Certainly, certainly. I mean, one of the things that comes to mind immediately is the difference between survival and what you could call, for lack of a better term, thrival or thriving, thriving versus surviving. Sure, precisely. Although thriving has an association with uh, like doing materially well, which I don't think is necessarily uh, associated with being, although it might be, you know what I mean? So 
being I think of as as being a fundamentally spiritual state, whereas existing is something that takes the material as being the primary concern. And then, of course, the question is, how do we navigate these two domains to integrate them? Yeah, I think one way of looking specifically like at the linguistic point you were making about existence, the 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 things that are outside of being, you could think of being as like the the grass or the ground and the mountains are the things that are coming out of the ground. And mm-hmm. so one mountain is different from another, but there's this fundamental underlying being that they have in common. And it's only in their removal from being that you can identify them as mountains right. when in reality their being is this of the same thing. They're, they're, they're earthly. And I think that you could make the same argument for humans too. Like we, we are little mountains out of a you know metaphysical substructure that is you know whatever being with a capital B is and you know we in the western tradition often have called that god um perhaps it's the Tao or it's something else as well Mm -hmm. and i i think that there's there's real import to to recognizing that as true and like that's a signal from just everyday speech that there's more to consider about being than than mere existence would 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 point out. Absolutely, I, the the metaphor that I like to use is of the ocean, which in the course of its churning creates waves which crash against each other, and then you have the spray, and sort of like the spray is like a droplet that for a moment feels itself to be separate from this ocean, which it really fundamentally isn't, but on another level it is. You know, and so that would be the kind of distinction between the body of being and then the kind of appearance of these things which are separate from being and yet really aren't because it's made of the same stuff. It came from the same place. It just has a temporary position that makes it seem as if it were individual. And that, I think, is a great way of viewing what life is in essence, you know, in in relation to spirit. Certainly. Well, and there's a whole, whole other class of like words that seem to point to the same thing. Like, so you, we mentioned existence, but there's also subsistence, persistence, resistance that are, that are all, 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 I think pointing back to this, this same thing that the, there's, there's fundamentally underneath all of this is some spiritual metaphysical being. And I I think actually you can say a lot more about it than um, sort of like a 21st century intellectually humble position would want to say about it. You know, in the, in the Catholic church, for instance, um, it's dogma that the existence of God can be proven from nature alone without revelation. Well, would that be the existence of God or the being of God? That's, uh, so I use the word existence in the, in the, I, so I think what you would argue is that the, the thing that is provable from nature alone without revelation is God is. Yeah. So more, more of, more of a, more of a beingness statement, but I think it gets a little, I, I am that I am. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it gets a little wonky when you start to, when you start to purely from a philosophical perspective, start to argue about what that means. Like what is his relationship to us? If I can prove that he is. And I do think that you can reason your way in 
from 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 reason alone to some really spiritually compelling and powerful ways of life. And I I mean I think that if you pause to consider just for a moment, like we I mean essentially like the belief that humans are existing on top of some like fundamental beings, you know, substrate that is being underneath them, like you could call that that substrate the, the collective unconscious or something. And you can actually build a really compelling way of life with calling the thing that is God, that collective unconscious and like the import that it would have on how I should live my life as an individual consciousness that roams around in the world. Mm -hmm. And what's so great about these things is like, we, we tend to believe in this day and age that things of matters of religion and theology are opinion. And there are certain classes of theological or religious thought that is opinion, but so much of it can actually be argued from first principles. And it actually exists more in the realm of knowledge and not in the realm of opinion or um, or something. It's a little bit of an aside. Well, I, I think it's, uh, I, I completely agree with that. Although I think the materialists would say that, you know, they would bring into question the nature of consciousness as something fundamental and would rather uh, think of it as something that follows from material interactions. So I guess that would be their way of avoiding um, the potentiality that there's actually something meaningful here. Certainly. But I do wonder the, I do think, and you know, it's Jordan Peterson who pointed this out. So I'm not going to take any credit for this, but I think that, that he is totally right. That evolution is actually not something that a materialist should be excited about as a almost conclusive truth, because it means that there's something towards which life these pure, these this pure purely material thing is actually moving towards some end so that's like a telios right yeah yeah well it's loosely like we can only conceptualize it right now as like survival of like an individual member of a species but when you start to consider it at scale like life actually moves in certain directions and it turns out that at least on earth so something to do with the underlying being of the earth is that life, even non-genetically related life, starts to tend towards the same end. So for example, um, uh, carnivorous plants, even that are that are do not descend from the same common ancestors, start to look similar and start to capture their, you know, their flies and other, other sorts of foods in the same ways, because there's something about the being of the earth with flies. That means that this is how you catch them. Hmm. And as soon as, as soon as there's a statement from outside that says, this is how you catch them, or here's one really effective way that you can catch them. That's re replicated over and over again in evolution. You start to get some semblance of something that's not material. anymore, right. And it's, the proper way to catch a fly. I mean, ultimately, it really comes down to the fact, and I think it really is a fact, that consciousness is such uh, so much more of an elegant explanation for the innovation that occurs within species than is random mutation. I mean, I just don't see how you can randomly get behavior that's going to fine-tune itself to such an extraordinary degree, you know? And I really do think that the... Um, that uh, what is the term? Because there's two different versions of it, one of which is creationism and the other one is uh, intelligent design. So I think it's the intelligent design folks who really have zeroed in on this as, a, as an issue that's 
scientifically compelling. And I, I completely agree. I think that the idea that life is continuing and developing on the basis of randomness is an absurdity. Mm. So we've, I think we've, I think we found our, I think we found our first position where we can like say like, we disagree on this point because I actually, I actually think that the intelligent design argument is pretty bogus. Okay, great. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. So I, I'm going to start. I don't know that I have, I haven't really articulated this position in a couple of years. So I'm going to be really rusty on, on, on precisely how I argue it, but, but since we're both smart and uh, charitable interlocutors, <laughs> I think. We'll okay. There. We can wing it. And if it really um, turns into a car crash, we'll edit it out and try again for the next episode. <laughs> Certainly. So one of the things that I have been just considering for a long time is that previous notions of like, like I would, what I would call boyish notions of God as like this thing that he's up there and he does things down here and he, he, you know, kind of waves his magic wand and stuff happens on earth. Mm-hmm. There's, that's kind of, I think the, it has become the opinion that almost all atheists hold of all theists, which is not, not true, but it's nonetheless, like some people think that. And I think that the intelligent design argument actually is closer to that conception of God than, than not. And, and the reason, the reason I think that is that one of the things that we could say from, if we're looking at the universe or at the cosmos from a metaphysical perspective, one of the things that really interesting things that St. Thomas Aquinas points out is that, and he follows Aristotle on this, so you could, you could um, almost interchange them. But he says that there's four causes for anything. We've already talked about one of them in this conversation. That's the telos, the end. That's the final cause, like why something undergoes a change. But then there's the the actual thing that undergoes the change that's called the material cause so that could be a block of wood that gets carved into a statue the um the the what it changes into is called the formal cause the form the how it changes from one thing to a, to another right through the tools of the carver is the efficient cause and then the final cause is why well the carver wanted to make a statue that's why the statue exists and so that's the fourth cause he says for the universe it's the same thing he says the material cause, the thing which goes undergoes the change is actually nothing, no thing, nothing. It becomes over time, it turned, turns into the form, which is in this case, it's actually God. The whole cosmos starts as nothing and tends towards becoming God. And it does this through God's agency and in order that God might be reconciled to all things that being itself might be maximally i think that that's a fascinating way of 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 framing it because it would actually say that what you claim is randomness i say no 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 providence is already in the randomness and so given enough time given enough opportunity for experimentation and change all being will tend towards god and it's just happened to be the case that it's happened here on earth and that material things randomly moving around and bumping into each other have are further along on its on its metaphysical metaphysical journey between nothingness and god that you have humans and perhaps we're so close that 
we're almost there. And that was why the incarnation was possible. Um, it was, it was not some miracle that the essence of God himself could take on human essence. Um, so again, I kind of botched the argument, but that's sort of how we, how we go there. I mean, there's an awful lot of fascinating stuff in there, and I'm not entirely sure how it relates to the question. I mean, I see that you're saying that fundamentally it's built into the um, elemental setup that there would be a kind of randomness of the interactions that are occurring. So I guess really all I could do rather than sort of argue that view is to paint a different picture. So if you'll allow me, I'll, I'll, do my best to kind of uh, do the schematic of, of the way I'm seeing it. You know, fundamentally, based on our own uh, experience of living, it's pretty clear that there is a kind of internal external dimension to things. And that however it is you want to characterize it, we can call it the psyche, you can call it the, uh, you know, the psyche kind of illuminated by the spirit, I think is the way that it's traditionally thought of. So whatever it is that that's, that's that experience of being, that is different from the physical context within which we find ourselves. And we're continually trying to negotiate the difference between those two realms. And I would say that that is the fundamental distinction within being, that, that there is a realm of consciousness and then there's a realm of phenomena. So consciousness is the thing which is experiencing and the phenomena is the thing being experienced. And when we say that something is incorporated, that it's in a body, what we're saying is that it has the capacity to experience. So it's always the dialectic between the experiencer and the phenomena that is occurring when it comes to life. And I believe that this is true, not just with human beings, but with all living things. And I think there's the potential, and I'm not going to say that I necessarily believe it, but I think there's the potential that this is the fundamental attribute of all being, of all things. In, in this way of viewing things, there's a very clear dividing line between God and the creation. And yet at the same time, God is present everywhere. So you could think of like the marriage between God and the creation as being something where, yes, there are two very separate entities being described here that traditionally you would have referred to uh, the phenomena as like Shekinah or something, or you could even think of it as Elohim because that's the the plural. And you could say like Elohim is the appearance of the many different forms of God's consciousness within this kind of material frame. But that the basic dynamic was of this subdividing within the consciousness of God that produced a realm within which uh, things could visit. And as I understand it, that's kind of one of the archetypical Greek concepts that, that in essence, when we're, when we're hearing about in, I think it's Genesis, the, the angels coming down and falling in love with the daughters of men, that that is a, a, a poetic way of describing the, the world of phenomena becoming so enticing that previously uh, immaterial 
angels, which are like the angles of God, you could say, were so drawn to them in the same way that we've become drawn by our own illusions, that they went to go live there and, quote unquote, defiled themselves. So from this point of view, every living being has God within them, whether they recognize it or not, and the degree to which they're attuned to the conditions of the phenomena around them is the extent to which they're trying to find a way to maintain their existence. And I'm using the word existence in, in the way that we've discussed it previously. But that the potential within humanity and the thing that distinguishes humanity is that we're able to tune into that uh, realm of being, which is to return to the, to the essence, to return to the immaterial spiritual realm the real of the real, more real than what we what the Vedics and the Hindus called Maya, more real than the apparent world, more real than, you know, Satan's playground, however you want to refer to it, the world that we're having to deal with here, because of its eternal nature. It's always been there through all the various transformations that have occurred within phenomena. So I don't know if that draws the picture, but that's kind of the overall framework that that I'm working within, at least. I think there are some pretty pretty remarkable parallels to to those two points of view, um, and and I and I don't know if we really addressed the issue of intelligent design and its relationship to evolution. How are how do you see those? I guess what you might those angles of God or that each little pocket of God's consciousness its relationship to the material things that evolve? How, how, do, how does that work? Well, in essence, when, when the psyche becomes so enthusiastic that it, it takes the material world for being real, which is what we typically do, that's what life does. Life gets inside of a body, it's viewing the phenomena of the world through the position of that body, and is attempting to continue its own uh, project. It has its, the teleos is, is embedded within uh, the material configuration that it finds itself. And so as the material configuration shifts, which is what's always occurring because energy is being uh, converted from one state to another, as the material world is changing, the, the consciousness is forced to deal with uh, a different set of circumstances and it makes its best effort to adapt. And I think that, that, that fundamentally genetic material is the encoding of the, of the microbiome on all the various types of uh, protein folds that might be able to address a, a range of different environmental circumstances. So it's really, instead of it being the, the driver of cell behavior, it's more like the record of cellular innovation. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So in both cases, I think we're, what we're arguing is that there, there truly is an, an external end towards which these material things are changing. Well, but, the, but that that end is continually transforming. So it's always slipping away from us because the material conditions are ever changing. So yes, at any given moment, ah. there is an environmental niche within which we can occupy, uh, or there's that potential 
And so we're working towards that. And that sort of explains, like, for instance, why the carnivorous plants all started to converge on one way of doing things, because there's an optimal way of going about getting uh, energy from a particular configuration. And the things which develop that optimal, optimal approach are going to be the ones that are going to prevail. This is a little complicated because there's a way in which this can turn on itself. So, you know, the, one of the ways that, that Darwin is talked about is, is saying that, well, there's survival of the fittest. And so the thing which is best suited to its environment will be the one which has the greatest success. But unfortunately, what's not really taken into account there is the feedback loop. Because the most successful, if we're going to say successful in terms of number of successions, so like more generations, so sort of the degree to which a population becomes uh, very large is the degree to which that population is going to change its environment. And that's going to make it more challenging for the population to continue in the way that it has prior. So fundamentally, you know, success can be a failure. Because it will, if, if you change the environment more quickly than your capacity to adapt to it, you're in big trouble. So success would actually be a very modest path. It would be a very humble way of, uh, you know, this is why I'm, a, I'm always a little suspicious of the sort of the ambition of, of great men, because quite often the things that have really changed the, the face of the world the most have also laden us with some of the biggest challenges. And I think that probably the most successful species are the ones which don't modify their environment as much. But that I don't think is what that is meant by successful when, you know, from an evolutionary point of view, from a Darwinian point of view. But th those are some fine points, but I think it's all very, very important when it comes down to really um, getting a grip on what we're talking about. But yeah, I think that fundamentally there is a, an element of conscious intention that guides the direction of living things. It's not an absolute. There's all kinds of uh, complexity to the, uh, the, the things which ultimately end up occurring in the development of a species. And a lot of it has to do with interaction. So you could say that there's a dialectical component, right? But that on the basis of each individual, and you could think of each species also as having kind of a, a particular point of view in somewhat the same way that an individual does. Yeah, they're, they're doing their best consciously to adapt to whatever the, the circumstances are. And that's a huge element in, in the progression of the species. Interesting, interesting. And so that kind of viewing of like a spiritual, an entity, guardian angel, so to speak, of, of species, of individuals, of groups, creates that conscious intentionality towards the changes that need to be made. Yeah, well, everything is viewing through whatever senses it has, the phenomena. So, you know, you could say in many mm -hmm. respects, the senses are the things that determine the perspective, because that's the, those are the messages we're getting. You could think of like different currents within the ocean are like different species. They're made of the same thing. And yet at the same time, you can identify them as being different. And so there may be currents that are far deeper. There may be currents that are far more on the surface, you know, and it may be that the ones on the surface are a bit uh, more, hmm, what's the right way of saying this? 
Like, how do we distinguish between the incredible range of experience that we can see evident within the biosphere? It's, it's incredible the number of ways that life manifests itself, right? So I'm not really sure exactly what depth means in that, in that model, if I'm going to make that comparison. But nonetheless, I think we can think of it in those terms, because one of the greatest difficulties in general, when you're kind of doing this kind of a cosmological outline is reconciling differentiation with unity, you know, because God is one and the universe is one. And we know that all things in some way, no matter how small are impacting everything else. So it's a very dynamic interaction that's happening, whether it's on a, you know, small individual ecosystem scale or just within the, the body itself or cosmologically speaking. Reconciling that seems like a real challenge. W without a doubt, I think the, the guiding hand or the, the being itself towards which, in which, and towards which, and through which all things live and breathe and have their being. That thing is really complex. And, you know, I said earlier two things. First, when I, when I was talking about, I said it's dogma that the existence of God is provable from nature alone without revelation. You asked me whether it was existence in the way that we had been talking about it prior or whether it was being. I'm going to revise what I said. I said it was more being. I think it's precisely existence because I think even in Revelation, we're getting glimpses of what he is, right? But I mean, even just in the conversation that we are having about the relationship between the many and the one, um, it's, it's, un, it's an unexhaustible and unfinished sort of conversation that the dialectic will only ever get us closer or give us another interesting way of thinking about it. And like that way of thinking about it may be interesting towards guiding our immoral lives or something like this. And so I think, I think in either case that um, what, what the difference between your position and my position is that my position is comfortable with a sort of, clockwork universe where just like the only thing that's fixed is what time does the, does it all end and i think that your view is is perhaps more robust in that it has a better a better articulation of like the relationships of these individual spirits that we first encounter as humans but then we can also encounter as like species on the whole or like regions of the universe or whatever hmm. Well, you know, we're in the realm of the unknown. So all of this is speculation. And of course, people have been speculating about these things since time immemorial. And I, I my hope is that what you say is true, that a conversation along these lines will lead us towards uh, a better understanding of what it is that we're here to do and how we're to best behave to bring about the best possible outcome, you know? Although I'm not 100% sure that's true either. <laughs> you know, it's it's awfully difficult to to say, but it seems like given the things that we have at our disposal, improving our understanding and trying to wrestle with other people's understanding is a great place to start. 
you know, you strike me as someone who's really concerned with trying to find the best way of of being, the best way of doing things. And uh, I think we both share that concern. And yet we live in a society right now and in, in a world that where that doesn't seem to be so much of a concern. And that concerns me. You know what I mean? Like the, the distance between those two things is quite frankly frightening at times. And so when we see what ends up happening in the political dimension and on the world stage and now in, in our own society, you know, how far we've fallen from, from doing things well, from, from being able to have a coherent way of living that, that is, you know, allows most people a decent existence. I, I, think there's, I think there's a give and take. I mean, obviously, while certain things have gotten worse in recent memory, many things have gotten better. Um, for you know vast sums of people and you you might ask what the spiritual cost is and i'm and i'm not saying that we shouldn't consider it one of the one of the just the realities is that there is there has never been a utopia there's no point in history that i can point to and i can say like that is where we should all go live and like we should reimplement that society and i do think that there have been at least theoretically there have been times in history and areas of the world that have made really epic strides towards what we might call, you know, the, the perfect society or something. Um, but one of the things that I know is that the perfect society is just, or, or society in general is at the end of the day, its function or its purpose is for the development of individuals and the perfection of the individual is possible, I believe. And I mean perfection more in its like Latin sense of being brought to completion. I think that that's what Christ means when he says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He's bring yourself to completion, be working towards completion and filling yourself out. And I think that some of the thinkers that you and I have both encountered, um, Jordan Peterson to, to say, to name one, uh, articulates like what the first baby steps towards perfection look like mm -hmm. and if you implement them slowly and surely enough over enough time like you can actually you actually can be complete and you can be complete in pretty pretty substantial ways and it's it's simpler than most people think right it's how's your how's your routine are are you married do you have your family what's your relationship with your extended family like and your friends like are you working toward did you help make your neighbor's life better it's less perhaps um, magnanimous or glorious perfection is than then we then we when then we chalk it up to be so that does leave me hope that irregard sorry irregardless is not a word I learned recently regardless of where where our society is going the freedom of the individual is something that can can never really be compromised because I'm not talking about the sort of freedom or liberty that the Declaration of Independence says that we have, you know, I'm talking about a much more fundamental elemental freedom that can't be taken away even if you're in chains.
Right. I agree. But of course, it's a very different thing to have that freedom uh, in chains versus not in chains. So, yeah, we can we can point to people like Alexander Solzhenitsyn, which I always mispronounce, but you know who I'm talking about, um, as an example of someone who even under incredible duress was able to maintain his spiritual uh, his spiritual being, let's say, intact and you know, yet at the same time, when we're talking about the relative health or sickness of a society, there are, there are basic metrics that indicate how we're doing. And and right now, unfortunately, I think, you know, not to be a big downer, but I think that we're seeing some really alarming signs, you know, in, in terms of social ills, uh, the degree to which people are drug addicted, the kind of um, economic problems that we're seeing where essentially one sixth of the economy got shut down due to COVID and there really doesn't seem to be any way in which that's going to be remedied, which when you consider knock-on effects, how that's going to work its way through the rest of the economy is deeply concerning, you know, and, and it's not like these things have just recently happened. It's been a, 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 a an overall, I'd say deterioration that, uh, that we've been witnessing since World War II, basically. And I think uh, we can, you know, discuss the details as to, you know, how bad it really is or and why it occurred the way it did. But we find ourselves, I think, now in, in a very dangerous place. It's very precarious because the very things that make a globalist society work well are the same things that do pose a... Um, it's not like a threat to the existence of true freedom, but they make true freedom seem, the, the, the work that you have to put in to achieve it seem not worth it, right? In a society, like we live in a world where, like you and I certainly live a more luxurious life than the King of France did just a couple hundred years ago. And that is crazy to consider. And one of the costs that you pay for that is that when you have worldly comfort at scale, spiritual comfort isn't as important. And um, I think that, you, you, you know, you've said a couple of times that we are on a precipice or that we're a, or a society at the experiencing the extent of its decadence and, and the fall is perhaps not far off. Um, I think you're right, actually, about that. But I do have hope that when things get reorganized, that it's not going to be as destructive as a downfall as perhaps we make it out to be. Yeah, I agree with that. And uh, in some respects, I'd say that the way that we were doing things could not continue forever, obviously. And when you're talking about managing seven point whatever it is, X number of billions of people on the planet, it's going to require a reduction in the degree of freedom that people in the West have enjoyed. Uh, I, I just don't see how, how it will be possible without that. But that doesn't mean that there isn't that potential for what we're basically talking about. I think you could say is a spiritual freedom. Uh, at least that's my hope is that we might be able to preserve that as a uh, human right and uh, whatever kind of restructuring is going to occur that it won't have some of the worst 
uh, and more frightening aspects of totalitarianism or of, you know, technological, uh, psychological control, all of those types of things are concerning. But I do think that the potential for there being a, a better way of going about doing things still remains. And that um, hopefully that's what, I mean, I do believe that that is up to God and, and to a large extent, the degree to which we're willing to proceed with, with uh, caution and, and humility and with God in mind is going to determine an awful lot of what ends up occurring. Are you familiar at all with post-liberalism? I'm not sure what that refers to, no. So, you, you know, I remember listening to uh, one of your uh, podcasts uh, with Judah, I think, and you were talking about, and, and we're, we're, ta- we're touching on it right now, like the, just the inherent threats of globalism persisting over time, at least with respect to, I mean, we can talk about its, its dangers with respect to the environment, which are there, are, those are clear too, but like also just with the respect to the spiritual health of the individual. Post-liberalism is sort of like a movement, like kind of political movement, I guess you could call it, that tries to argue for a different sort of political ideology to undergird our society. Um, there were three essentially that were competing in the 20th century, and that was liberalism, communism, and fascism. And two of them were, you know, judged to be over time uh, unplayable or unworkable, communism and fascism. And we were left only with the one, with liberalism. And, and, I, and I mean liberalism not in terms of like liberals versus conservatives, but just the underlying notions of you know, the freedom of the individual and liberal democracies and like we elect our leaders, like that, that sort of liberalism, liberalism, liberty to engage in market commerce, like all of that kind of bundled into one concept. And, and the thing is, is that the liberty that is proclaimed by liberalism is not at all the same liberty that has been believed in through for the history of the West. And it's kind of this, this distinction that we've been talking about. We've been using like the words spiritual freedom to, to describe it. And one of the, the interesting things about it is that that freedom that has been classically believed in and taught, it's like, it's a virtue. It's a, it's one, it's almost one of Aristotle's virtues where it's a habit that has to be cultivated. And if you don't cultivate it, you won't have it right? Because you end up a slave and addicted and and whatnot through your own inaction. And rather liberalism says, no, 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 no. Freedom, you, you, you have it already. It's given to you. The Declaration of Independence says God gave it to you, mm. right? Endowed by his creator with unalienable rights. Mm. And among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Like you already have freedom. Now you just need governments and institutions to come in and protect it from those who want to take it away from you. And so post-liberalism is challenging that fundamental notion that is truly at the heart of our society. It's at the heart of our Declaration of Independence. It's that, no, 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 you don't have freedom. Freedom, you have to earn. You cultivate it. It's a virtue. It's the older kind of freedom. It's the one that's pursued through the study of the liberal arts Hmm. and, you know, um, and those sorts of virtues. And so like that results in a fundamental restructuring of the world. That's, it's not capitalism, certainly. 
and it's certainly not communism either it's it's truly something different it's more of like a micro community sort of structure of society like a city-state structure Mm. that is one of the potential ways of thinking about implementing post-liberalism in Mm. the world that's very interesting well you know we're we're at about an hour and a half uh and i've been trying to keep the podcasts a little bit on the shorter side lately just because i i think people can only focus for so long, including myself. Uh, But I'm really happy with the way that we talk. And I I think that we've sort of probed some really fundamental things in this conversation and hope that we continue to do so because there's just so many, you know, like this, even this, this last issue having to do with, well, what is meant by individual liberty? And is there a way in which there is an unalienable aspect of that on some level you could say well choice is liberty and so having a, a political system where people have some degree of choice and then of course within us regardless of our circumstance kind of getting back to that uh, even in chains we have a degree of liberty within our own psyches all of that i think is really important very basic infrastructural type of stuff and then the idea that there might be this new organization a new way of conceiving of how to structure a society where huh, can you say that last part again because i really liked what i got from it but i don't know how to uh, characterize it myself so you were saying that this is kind of suggesting a new uh, mode of of social organization and of uh, venture right yeah, yeah, essentially. And and this is not the only way that you could implement this notion of liberty, right? Post-liberalism, I think, is a broader political ideology that could manifest itself in a couple of ways. The city-state one is the one I was talking oh, yeah. about. Um, but I think in particular, like imagining like really small micro communities of people that, you know, essentially educated themselves, worshipped together as a community, um, through common works of labor, like took care of one another. So, you know, there's elements of like communal living um, that get baked into this, but then there's fundamentally at its core structure is a commitment on each person's part to really engage in the political life of the city and keep it good and healthy and like cultivate freedom as individuals and then bring that cultivated freedom to bear on society. And society is small enough that, you know, truly one man having his life together can make can preserve the the integrity of this political union hmm. um, and if everyone has it together then like it's going to persist forever and so the idea of it just being it's it's communal and it's small such that the individ the, the weight of each individual's liberty matters it strikes me that something like that would have to be organized around not only a common vision of spiritual practice, but also that there would need to be some common venture where you are providing something of importance to society at large, you know, and and the thing that seems to like the prerequisite for that to function in a micro community context is that we would maintain the right to uh, property. 
And, and the thing that concerns me about what's happening now, like if we view what's going on in China and that sort of thing, and the kinds of changes that are happening with our economy now, I'm concerned about the ability for people to maintain property rights over the course of the next 50 years, let's say, here in this country. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm concerned that a lot of this is going to become kind of a by fiat type of thing, that there's going to be governmental encroachment and that everything will be organized in a, if it is organized from a, from a kind of top-down point of view. And I really hope that's not the way it goes. That's not what I'm, that's what I'm concerned about, uh, but not necessarily saying that it's uh, baked into the pie. Well, we can uh, rest comfortable that eminent domain is blatantly unconstitutional, but we've never had a Supreme Court that had the balls to say that. Huh. Give me a little bit more about that before we uh, before we sign off. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think super clearly that the first of all, the Constitution doesn't really broach the topic, but when it does, it's with with relation to the states, and if the states are going to be ceding land or territory to the federal government or to another state or for the creation of a new state, um, that all has to be done with the will of the state legislature, right? And so like there's this fundamental freedom at least baked into the relationship between the federal governments and the states that the federal government doesn't just get to do what it wishes with, with land or property because it happens to be the government. I think you could actually maybe argue that there's a constitutional case against federal land in general. That's not, um, especially federal land that's not willfully given by the state to the federal government. But nonetheless, well, um, good luck with that one in the courts. <laughs> that's what I'd say to that. <laughs> yeah, I will. I, I'll, I'll I'll have good luck with that one. But I mean, honestly, I do think that there are good good cases that could be made ag against things like eminent domain, perhaps even federal land, and. And that, and those two things alone, like if you if you take away those powers, it's like what what is the federal government even anymore? Well, that may be true, but you know, there have been cases where eminent domain has been used for the seizure of land that has you know definitely happened. And so the question to which we are able to maintain a society where laws are being faithfully abided by or even are defensible is, I think, also another uh, something we should really be keeping a close watch on. I guess is the way I would phrase it. Because uh, there does seem to be an awful lot of funny business going on, and I don't see the coherency in response that suggests that we're going to be able to stop the forces. It's similar to what happened within the universities, you know, if we take the kind of evergreen model of, uh, and th this is basically what Brett Weinstein has been going on about now for quite a while, is that he feels that evergreen was sort of the test case, and now it's being rolled out uh, on a much larger scale. If that's true, and I I don't know that it necessarily is, I think maybe there's a certain amount of paranoia in there. But on the other hand, he's a very smart guy. And I think that many of the things that he points out are just un, without doubt, very concerning and, and, and basically true when it comes to the degree to which the uh, the power plays are being made with no regard for whether it makes sense, whether it's legal or anything. If that's the kind of thing that's being rolled out on a national scale right now, and I know that there's plenty of people who would argue that that's already happening, we might be in for kind of a rough ride. We may. I, especially with regards to the university example, I have hope that 
COVID-19 is going to stick the dagger in the hearts of many universities that have lost their ways. And uh, perhaps that that will lead to uh, a little bit of a reset with regards to that. That's an interesting possibility. And I guess on some level, you know, there's all of this concern when you see various institutions falling by the wayside, but the potential for new institutions springing up in the vacuum, which of course would be the evolutionary way of things occurring, well, that's something that I think is very hopeful, and, and I really hope that we start to see. I know that uh, that's one of uh, Dr. Peterson's projects right now, if I'm not mistaken, is to basically uh, start a new university. Is that correct? Yeah, I think, I, I don't know if, if, that's, if it's as formal as that. I think that some of that thinking got in, enshrined in the ThinkSpot uh, social media platform that has come out. Have you been working with that at all? So I am on ThinkSpot. I am not a paying subscriber. So at least at, at least in the beta phase, I was not able to like post content. You have mm-hmm. to um, kind of be in this premium model to be able to like build a channel and then monetize it. And it's one of one of the ways that it keeps it sort of ad free is that the the moderators or the content creators start by paying, and then that's part of the integrity of like the they're not selling your privacy sort of, sort of business models. Got it. Um, but I am actually uh, looking forward to, to diving into it a bit more uh, as we, as we start working on relaunching the cryptosophy podcast. I think it could be a really good uh, social Avenue. Do you have a sense of how successful it's been? Um, you know, I, there are some, I, I'm on all of the email lists. I don't have any metrics for like how many subscribers there are, but you know, I get an email um, about once a week that features like a content creator. And like, I can just remember there's, you know, Akira the Dawn has been featured. Bishop Barron has been featured. Um, hmm. There's been some interesting essays that, that, that get, um, that they you know, kind of conglomerate and send out as a newsletter. Um, everything from, you know, COVID-19 stuff and issues of freedom and personal liberty to more like kind of art criticism and stuff. So I, I do think that at least it has the, the glimmerings of like, if it's, if it's able to be successful, it has the glimmerings of like that. Interesting. Sort of turnkey or like all encompassing sort of like quest for knowledge, sort of uh, social media platform. Hmm. Yeah. The whole social media landscape is getting really interesting and very fragmented given the degree to which people are trying to find some alternative to Facebook and Twitter and and the, all the standard players, it's going to be really interesting to see if something else can come up that's going to have that kind of potential reach. Um, but yeah, we are rapidly approaching the two-hour mark, so I'm going to just forcefully bring this to a close. Um, I can't thank you enough. That's awesome. Yeah, no, thank you so much for for uh, for having me on. I'm I'm looking forward. Hopefully, you don't hate me, and uh, maybe we can do this again sometime. I definitely do not hate you. I really uh, admire your, like, you just have a really great way of, of thinking and approaching things in a very balanced way. You're willing to consider all kinds of different things. And I think whatever it is you're doing, you should keep doing it. And I'm really looking forward to the new uh, season of your podcast. Cryptosophy, awesome. is that the way it's said? Yeah, cryptosophy. But yeah, we just, we just launched a new website, uh, cryptosophy.fm. I'm still working on some of the pages, but for the most part, it's, uh, it's complete. Doyle, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. 
I'm so thrilled that you reached out um, via our telegram <laughs> and um, I can't even, I mean, dude, I, so I'm on this thing right now. I'm, I, I, I don't know if you know this, but I work for a, I work for a company. I'm a product manager for a, essentially a 90 day spiritual exercise um, called Exodus. And we have, we have other spiritual exercises and I'm in the middle of one right now. And one of the disciplines is um, to not use technology except for work or school, which is why I had turned off all the notifications on all of my apps. <laughs> and ah, interesting. So, so the fact that I even like, you know, had a moment of weakness, and I'm like, I'm gonna see what's on tell, what's going, what's new on Telegram, and, and I saw. It. <laughs> oh my God, I broke your spiritual practice. That's terrible. No, it's all good. It's perfect. I'm really glad. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We look forward to serving you again soon. In the meantime, remember, turn that thing over a few times before you pick it up and take it home. <laughs>